Well, I want to remind you guys this week, we haven't talked about it in a little bit, uh, if you guys will continue to be praying for David Siobhan and his wife, Wendy. Uh, David is our administrative pastor here at Southwood. He's on administrative leave down in Houston, having pretty significant treatment for his cancer. I uh, did want to share with you, though, they had a very good piece of news this week. Their little granddaughter, Sophia Marie Siobhan, was born. So even in the midst of the trial they're going through, there's some really good news going on. So please do be praying for David. Um, speaking of babies, I was thinking about this week, there are some things in my childhood um, that over the years as I've grown up, I have gradually abandoned. Uh, Fortunately, I I no longer wear diapers. That's good. I no longer have a distaste for vegetables. Um, I no longer watch five hours of cartoons on Saturday morning. Uh, But there are actually a number of things from my childhood that that stick with me, things that linger in my life, like my love of all things made of ice cream. That's still here. Uh, My lack of athletic ability. That's still here. And my, my fascination with that series of books entitled The Way Things Work. You guys ever seen these hardback, well-illustrated children's books? Um, I, I love these things. Absolutely fascinated by these things. You, you open them up and they, and they have these pictures that explain to you how common devices work, like the lock in your door or the motor and your electric can opener. As a kid, I just got a thrill out of these books, a thrill when it would dawn on me. So that's how they do it. I plan to own all of these books when I have kids one day. When they ask me to read them a story at bedtime, it will be out of one of these books. I'll I'll pull it. I'll flip it open. Okay, kids, tonight we're going to learn how gyroscopes work. Now, that that may put them to sleep, but it's going to keep me up all night because I love the thrill of knowing how something works. If I understand how something works, then I appreciate it. I, I know what to do with it. I know how to care for it. Now, that love extends beyond just machines and devices. I, I want to know how all things work in my life. My marriage, my finances, my physical body, my spiritual life. I want to know how these things work so that I can fully appreciate them and know how to use them and care for them. Well, that's why I'm really excited this morning. Because we're going to be looking at a way things work passage of scripture. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, 12 to 18 is basically a non-illustrated book like this, telling us the way things work. We're not going to look at gyroscopes this morning, as fascinating as that would be. Uh, We're going to look at something far more important. We're going to look at ourselves. How does our spiritual life work? How does it work to be a follower of Jesus Christ? We, We know that as believers in Jesus Christ, we are called to obey him. We are called to grow in righteousness. But how does that actually work? How does this obedience thing actually work in life? In the midst of a world as sinful and rebellious as ours, and with a heart as sinful and rebellious as mine, how do I actually obey God and grow in righteousness? How does that work? How does obedience and growth and righteousness work? I I think that's a fundamental question to life. That's a question that we desperately need to know how to answer because that's what life is all about, obeying Jesus and growing to be more like him. That's what success in life is all about. So we need to know, how does it work? How do we grow in our obedience to Jesus Christ? That's what Paul will teach us this morning from Philippians 2, 12 through 18. It's, I think, perhaps the clearest explanation anywhere in your Bible of how the spiritual life works. But before Paul gets to the how of our spiritual life, as he often does, he'll start by reminding us of the why. 
We're going to start by going back to the motivation. Why is it that we need to obey God? Why is it that we need to grow in Christ-likeness? We're going to find the answer uh, starting in verse 12, if you'll look with me there. Paul says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Uh, There's two key phrases in this verse that give motivation to us. Now, in the New Testament, there are many uh, motivations given to us to obey, many different motivations. Here, Paul's just focusing on one, and he uses two phrases to point it out. First phrase is, so then, right at the beginning of the verse. That's a conjunction that tells us that what follows is a logical conclusion or deduction from what came before. So let's jump back up. Passage we looked at two weeks ago. Start with me in verse 9. Paul said, if you remember, for this reason also God highly exalted him, that is Jesus Christ, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you remember, we studied that passage in detail. Paul's emphasis in those three verses is on the lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus' absolute sovereign authority over all of creation. Now, I think what Paul's doing in verse 12, a verse that's all about obedience, is he's pointing us back to Christ's sovereign rule over creation, and he's reminding us, this is the guy who will hold you accountable. This is the guy, verses 9 through 11, who you will stand before and give an account of your obedience, of your life. Paul talks about that day of judgment very clearly in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. This is talking about the day when we stand before Jesus Christ for judgment. Now, to remind you, this judgment is not about getting into heaven. Getting into heaven, that was sealed up the moment you trusted in Jesus as your Savior. The moment that in faith you chose to believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead, your destiny was secure. You are for sure going to heaven and there's nothing you can do to lose that. That's secure. This is something different. Once we are in heaven, the first thing we will do is see our Savior face to face and he will evaluate our lives. He will judge our lives, not based on our faith, but based on our works, on our deeds. And that evaluation will determine not getting into heaven, but getting reward or suffering loss receiving honor from Jesus or suffering shame. We've talked about that many times over the last few months, that all believers will stand before Jesus Christ for judgment. And the New Testament is very clear. The thought of that should fill us with some fear. It it should be scary. I, I do believe that when I see Jesus for the first time face to face, it will be joyful, it will be awesome, but it will also be quite terrifying. When I stand before the sovereign creator of heaven and earth and I realize here's the one whom I'm accountable to. Here's the one who is evaluating my life before whom all of my deeds and thoughts and attitudes are laid bare. Okay. Paul reminds us of that reality and then he tells us how we should live, the attitude we should live. Look again in verse 12, the second phrase I want to point out to you, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That should be the logical response. If, if the guy in verses 9 through 11 is the one to whom we are accountable to, the sovereign Lord of all creation who sees all, who knows all, who has all power, then the logical response is, I ought to live this life in fear and trembling. 
Now let me explain those words. Fear in the Bible has a range of meaning. On one end it can mean fright or terror. On the other end it can mean reverence or respect. Now in this passage, in view of verses 9 through 11, I don't think fright is the idea, but I also don't think it's simply respect. I think Paul's looking in the middle here. I think fear is a great translation. Paul wants us to live with a healthy sense of fear of Jesus Christ. That's backed up by the next word, trembling. That uh, talks about uh, the feeling of awe, like what the disciples felt when they stood before the empty tomb, when Jesus had risen from the dead and they realized, oh my gosh, this really is the Son of God, and they feel awe. Paul is challenging us to live life with a healthy sense of fear and awe of Jesus Christ. Now, um, that may sound a little weird to some of you, We've kind of been teaching you at church for years that fear is a bad thing, that that fear is contrary to faith, that you shouldn't give in to fear. That's true of unfounded fears, fears that run contrary to reality. For example, should you fear death? No. As a believer in Jesus Christ, the fear of death is unfounded because death has no power over you anymore. Death is simply a doorway into the infinitely better experience you will have in the presence of Jesus Christ. So God doesn't want you to feel fear of death. He wants you to reject that. Same with fear of sickness, fear of persecution, fear of job loss, fear of financial panic. God doesn't want you to give in to those fears. They're unfounded because God has taken care of you. He is providing for you and protecting you. So you should not give in to unfounded fears, but not all fears are unfounded. Some fears are based in reality. Those are fears that God has given you as a gift to protect you. Healthy fears, well-founded fears are a gift that God gives to human beings. Fear protects us. When we feel fear over right things, it wakes us up. It sharpens our senses. It causes us to take that threat seriously. A few years ago, I was out hunting with some of the other pastors here at Grace Bible Church, and we were in the hill country, and we're hunting turkeys, and uh, Zach Nigliazzo, our youth pastor, was, was hunting, um, and, and as he's walking through this uh, about waist-high brush, he's got his eyes on the horizon, he's looking for any movement, and all of a sudden, under his feet, he hears what sounds like a baby's rattle. He looks down, and he's standing right over a full-size rattlesnake ready to pounce. Now, In an instant, Zach jumps out of the way, levels his shotgun, and kills the snake. It it was an amazing response. Instantaneous, incredibly accurate. He's awesome. Yeah, Zach is quite the man. Now, what is it that allowed Zach to respond so well to that threat? Fear. Fear. God gave us a fear of rattlesnakes for a good reason, so that when we see them under our feet, we will respond, we'll jump out of the way, we'll take that threat seriously, and it saves Zach's life. Fear can be a very good thing when it's placed in the right objects, when it's reasonable. And that's what Paul is challenging us to realize. Fear of Christ is reasonable because Christ is the infinite sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. He is holy and just. It is right to live in fear and awe of Jesus Christ. That fear and awe should motivate us to obey him who is our Lord and judge. You see that many places in scripture, 1 Peter 1. If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. You can't bribe this judge. This judge is perfectly righteous, so live with a healthy sense of fear while you're here on earth. Exodus 20.20 says a similar thing. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you, and in order that the fear of him may remain with you, so that you may not sin. 
The point of fearing Christ is to motivate obedience. If, if you have a healthy fear of God, it motivates you to obey. It's like when I was in high school, junior in high school, one of the best things that my guidance counselor ever did was instill within me a healthy sense of fear of the SAT test. She convinced me that this test would determine not only what colleges I could go to, but what scholarships I would get. So I developed a pretty healthy sense of fear of that test, and that fear motivated me to study like crazy. I did well on the SAT because fear caused me to take it seriously. That's what fear is meant to do. It causes us to take something seriously. And that's what Paul wants to remind us this morning. Why should we obey? Because it's Jesus who is our Lord. Because we will stand before him. Yes, Jesus is my friend. He is my savior. But he is also the almighty Lord of my life and my uncompromising judge. Yes, when I see him, I will feel love, but I will also feel terror because he is infinitely holy and almighty. So why? Why should we pursue obedience and growth in the Christian life? Because the guy in 9 through 11 is the one who will hold us accountable. Jesus Christ himself, the Lord of heaven and earth, we will answer to him. Now, if when you think about Jesus, if you don't feel any fear, I would challenge you this week to develop a healthy sense of fear of Jesus, to uh, read these verses 9 through 12, meditate on them, read 1 Peter, read Exodus twenty twenty, and then spend a little bit of time prayerfully meditating on what will it be like to stand before the sovereign creator and give an account of my life. What will it be like if he says to me, well done, good and faithful servant? What joy will I feel if I hear that from the almighty creator? On the other hand, what shame, what loss will I feel if he is ashamed of the life that I've lived, if I've squandered my life? Meditate on that reality because that day is coming soon. It's a guaranteed day of judgment. Meditate on it. Let it develop within you a healthy sense of fear that motivates your obedience. So that's the why. Paul starts with motivation, but then he moves on to explain how does it work. I, I know now, looking at Jesus as my Lord, that I want to obey, but how do I actually do it? When everything in my world and so much in my heart leads me towards sin, how do I resist sin, obey Jesus, and grow to be more like him? That's where Paul goes next. And what he does, he starts with a command. We've seen that in verse 12, so I don't need to reread it. I'll just point it out to you. The big command of verse 12 is that phrase, work out your salvation. The verb work out, it means to accomplish or produce something. Paul is saying accomplish or produce your salvation. Now, the meaning that Paul has in mind here, what, what we've got to do to understand is we've got to do a little word study of the word salvation. See, in English, the word salvation carries a lot of baggage, doesn't it? When you hear salvation, what do you think of? I want to get to heaven. That's what we think of. But when you see the word in the Bible, that's not necessarily what it means. That's actually not usually what it means. Salvation in the Bible, the word there simply means deliverance, to rescue someone from something. You have to study the context to determine what the word means in any given passage. Sometimes the word means to rescue someone from sickness or to deliver someone from their enemies, to rescue them from physical danger. In the spiritual sense, it can mean to deliver someone from the penalty of sin. We call that justification. It's the idea of forgiveness of sins when God declares us righteous. Sometimes it can refer to uh, deliverance from the power of sin. We call that sanctification. It's a process where sin uh, gradually has less and less hold over us. 
Sometimes it can mean deliverance from the presence of sin. When sin is completely removed from us on that day after, on that day that we die and get to see Jesus face to face, we call that glorification. Sometimes the word can refer to all of those last three, to kind of the package that God gives us in spiritual salvation of justification, sanctification, glorification. Okay, so there's a wide range of meanings. What's in view here? Well, none of the first three make sense here. You, you don't work out your deliverance from sickness or enemies or physical danger. That's not in the context at all. Uh, the fourth one also doesn't fit because we know from this book, you go back to chapter one, verse one, what does Paul call them? saints, those who are holy in Christ Jesus. They, they are already justified. They've already been declared righteous by God. So that one doesn't fit. We also know that the, the glorification one doesn't fit. Look forward in your Bible, chapter 3, verse 20. Paul tells us, chapter 3, verse 20, for our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power he has even to subject all things to himself. That is a verse about glorification. Who is it that affects glorification in our life? Not us, it's Jesus. We, we don't work out our glorification. Jesus glorifies us when he arrives. So that one's also not in view here. So what's left? What is the meaning in this verse? Well, it's sanctification. That's what verse 12 is all about. Paul is saying, work out your sanctification with fear and trembling. Sanctification is that process only going on in the life of a believer, not for other people, just in us, where God is gradually transforming us, growing us in holiness. That's the idea, the root word of sanctify, to set apart unto holiness. It's the idea of growing in the likeness of Christ. So that's what Paul is commanding us here, to work out our sanctification, to become more like Jesus. Uh, but how do we actually do that? <laughs> I mean, it would be nice to know, how do I actually do that? That phrase is a little, little obtuse. Work out your sanctification. What does that even mean? How do I do that? Well, Paul explains in the rest of verses 12 and 13, Paul gives us the way of sanctification. He tells us how it works, and he starts with our part. What is our part in this process of sanctification? Verse 12, very clear, it is obedience. As you have always obeyed, continue to obey. Our part in sanctification is to obey. Now, Paul does not specify the object of that obedience. He leaves it open. What do we need to obey? Paul's saying, basically, you need to obey it all. Everything that God has revealed to you in his word, every command he's given, this is what you need to obey. And notice he says, you need to obey always. As always, obedience is not something you do nine months a year and then take a vacation from. Obedience is something we have to do 24-7, 365. All the time we're called to obey. And notice Paul says, obey both in my presence and in my absence. We obey not just in public for show, we must obey in private. Point here is that God is expecting of us, he is calling of us to obey Jesus Christ in every area of life all of the time. Our part in sanctification is complete obedience to Jesus Christ. In every area of life, all of the time, completely yielding ourselves to him in obedience. Now again, that obedience, it does not earn heaven for me. Disobedience does not risk heaven. But there will be serious consequences when I stand before Jesus Christ if I chose to obey or disobey in this life. My part in sanctification is complete, utter obedience all of the time in every area of my life, in public and in private, to Jesus Christ. That's my part. But fortunately, I'm not alone in sanctification. Sanctification is a partnership between God and I. 
Now, not, not justification or glorification. Those are totally God. He does all of those. Sanctification, it's God and I cooperating together. My part is complete obedience. What's God's part? Look at verse 13. Paul says, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul's telling us that as we seek to obey, God is in us, he's working in us to do two things. God has two parts to play in our sanctification. Uh, Number one, God is working in us to work according to his goodwill. That's the first thing Paul tells us, to work according to his goodwill. That means that God is empowering our obedience. God is working in us to empower us to work for him, to obey him. Now, how exactly does that work? Paul gives us more detail in another very significant passage, Galatians 5, 16. He tells us, I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Paul tells us, specifically, it's the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit living inside of you who empowers your obedience. As you walk by the Spirit, that's uh, kind of a, a catchy way of saying, as you allow the Holy Spirit to take control of your life, he will give you the ability to resist the desires of the flesh, to resist sin and temptation. Paul's point is this life of obedience in verse 12, it is not a life of self-effort. It is not a life of self-sufficiency where I grit my teeth and choose to obey. It's a life of humble dependence. For those of you who were here last week when we went through Psalm 23, remember what what we discovered. At the end of the day, we are nothing more than weak, vulnerable, foolish sheep. We can't make ourselves obey. We're too weak to do that. We don't have the power within ourselves. That's why we need God. That's why every day we need the Holy Spirit to empower our obedience. This is why verse 12 is not about legalism. Some of you may have heard me a minute ago as I went through verse 12 and I told us, I told you our responsibility is to completely obey God. You may have heard that and raise the red flag of legalism, but this is not legalism. Legalism is the attempt to obey God out of my own strength for my own glory. That's legalism. But this is not legalism. I'm not obeying God out of my strength or for my glory. I'm obeying God out of his strength. This is obedience that is dependent. This is obedience that is humble, that goes before God and bows the knee and says, God, I can't do it without you. God, I'm nothing more than a weak, vulnerable, foolish sheep. I need you to fill me with your spirit to empower my obedience. This is all about glory for God. It's not legalism. This is obedience through the power of God. Now, I think this is where the spiritual disciplines fit into our life. I think that's kind of what uh, Paul has in mind here. If you remember, the spiritual disciplines are those practices in our life that Scripture talks about, like reading the Word of God, memorizing it, meditating on it, uh, praying, worshiping throughout the week, fasting, giving, serving. Uh, They're practices that don't earn us favor with God. What these practices do is they put us at at the foot of the Holy Spirit. They make us available to the Holy Spirit. If you practice the spiritual discipline, spending time in the word, praying, worshiping, giving, you are making yourself available to the Holy Spirit. You're putting yourself in a dependent position before him to fill you and empower you. That's why I I think I can say very clearly that none of us are too busy to practice the spiritual disciplines. Because the spiritual discipline is your way to tap into the power of God. If you're not spending time in his word, meditating, memorizing, praying, worshiping, fasting, giving, serving, if you're not doing these things and you're out there on your own, you don't have access to the power of God, you will fail. 
you can't obey in your own strength. The spiritual disciplines is how we access the power of the Holy Spirit in us so he can empower our obedience and work through us to the glory of God. So how does sanctification work? My part, obey completely every day in every way. God's part, part one, is to empower our obedience. But God doesn't stop there. He doesn't just empower our obedience. Paul says he also works in us so that we will according to his good pleasure. To will. That, that's a, a verb that means to wish or to desire. What Paul is saying is God doesn't just empower your obedience. He also works in your attitudes at the level of your desires to change your desires so that you will desire what he desires. So that you will want to do what he wants you to do. To me, this is like the great hope of the Christian life. Okay, what it's telling me is that God doesn't empower me to obey him and to obey some command that I really don't enjoy. God's not empowering me to do something that I'm really just going to hate all my life. I think that's what a lot of people think about the Christian life, that it's all about doing things we really rather not do, trying to obey God by doing things we really secretly hate. That's not the Christian life. The Christian life is I obey and God works in me to change my desires so that I love obedience. God is working in us so that obedience is not out of obligation, but out of thrill, out of desire, out of joy. God is transforming our desires. Now, sometimes that happens in an instant. Especially if you talk to someone who comes to Christ late in their life, they'll share with you how it was like like overnight, some of the things, some of the sins that they used to love are now distasteful to them. Or some of the things about the Christian life that sounded goofy, like going to church or reading the word, they just can't get enough of it. Sometimes God transforms us instantaneously, uh, but usually it happens gradually. Usually God works in us through his spirit in a gradual process of forming new habits and desires. It's interesting when you study the word of God and then you read biology and you find out about how our brains work. God created our brains so that the spiritual life would work well. He created our brains where they can learn and develop new habits and new desires. Here's what I think happens. Uh, There's a particular area in my life, let's say, that I I really would prefer not to obey God. I, I like the sin. I don't want to obey. But I choose today. God, in the power of your spirit, I will obey today. And then I wake up tomorrow and I do it again. God, I still, I don't want to obey. But in the power of your spirit, I'm going to do it again. And I do it again. And I do it again. And I do it again. Day after day, what happens? The Holy Spirit works in the neurons of my brain to shape new pathways so that I build a habit, so that I begin to become more natural at obedience. And as those neurons form, gradually my desires bend that way. Gradually I find, hey, obedience isn't so distasteful to me. I I, I no longer so desire that sin. After a while, you keep practicing that and you wake up and find out, whoa, I actually want to obey God in this area. I don't have any desire to do the sin anymore. Now, that may take years of obedience, And we can be set back if we give in to sin for a time and strengthen the other habit. But if we will walk with God day after day, relying on the power of his spirit, he will work in the processes of our brains to shape new habits and desires so that obedience is not out of obligation, it is out of joy. That's God's desire for you. He doesn't want you to obey out of obligation. He doesn't want you to be sad sitting in the pew. He wants you to obey out of joy. And so he's working in you to transform your desires. That is the great hope of sanctification. Not just that I can obey today, but that I can want to obey tomorrow. So how does a spiritual life work? Our part. Our part is to obey Christ fully. 
in every way, all the time, complete obedience to God, but not out of our effort. We rely on God to do his part through his Holy Spirit to empower us, to strengthen us to obey today. And as we obey day after day, to work in us to transform our desires so that tomorrow we long for obedience more and more and more. That's how the spiritual life works. I think the clearest passage anywhere you'll find on how obedience and growth work. Now, Paul quickly moves from this explanation of sanctification to a particular application. If you look with me in verse 14, he he looks at a particular area of obedience that the Philippians are struggling with. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. He's going to hit two specific sins here that, that can destroy unity. Remember, that's a big theme of this book. How do we build our unity with one another? So Paul's going to challenge him. I want you to grow in your sanctification in two particular areas that challenge your unity. Paul knows that they're struggling with these. The first one he mentions is grumbling. Um, grumbling means a, an utterance made in a low tone of voice. When it's used negatively, it it means to express a complaint or displeasure, not openly where all can hear, but privately behind the scenes. This is a person who is frustrated by someone or or about something. And instead of going to that person and expressing your frustration, you go behind their back. You, You go share it with someone else. You spread your discontent, your dissatisfaction. Grumbling or complaining, it does not seek solutions to problems. It simply seeks to spread discontent. We see this often in the Old Testament, especially the book of Exodus. When the Israelites were wandering through the wilderness, they often grumbled. They complained about God and about God's leader, Moses. They didn't go to Moses looking for solutions to their problems. They simply complained to one another. See the same problem in the New Testament? Churches complaining about the decisions that the apostles had made, not looking for solutions, just seeking to spread discontent. And when you study these uses uh, of this word in the Bible, I think you find that the root issue of complaining is a lack of faith. Why do we complain? We complain because we lack faith in God. We do not believe in God's wisdom, his goodness, his power. We complain when, when we're frustrated by a situation, by a difficulty in our life. We complain because we do not believe that God will work all things to our good. We complain when a leader over us decides something we don't like because we do not trust God's sovereign wisdom in putting that person over us in our lives. Complaint is an expression of lack of faith in God's goodness, wisdom, power. And and complaint, because of that, really is a disease. It's a disease that we spread from one another, from one to another, a disease that we spread among ourselves of distrust, of discontent in God's workings among us. Now, grumbling, complaining, this is not like the big idea of the sermon, but I I think it is worth pausing for a moment and just kind of focusing on this because, man, this this is a big one. This is one all of us struggle with. This is one that I think threatens our our church right now. I think Grace Bible Church is threatened by the sin of grumbling, of complaining. There's a lot to be dissatisfied with here at this church, at any church. Many of you have handled your frustrations really well, really appropriately, but some of you have struggled in this area. A frustration has come up and instead of going to the person who's frustrated you, you've spread complaining instead. You've gone to others and grumbled about what's happened. If, if you look back at the last year in your life and you see examples when you gave in to the sin of complaining, let, let me challenge you this morning. Number one, please don't do that again. Please don't give in to the temptation to complain. Complaining doesn't do anyone any good. It doesn't do you good. It doesn't do good to the one that you just shared it with. It certainly doesn't do good to the leader who you're going behind their back. 
Please don't give in to the, to the temptation to complain. Second, if you have complained, I really I encourage you to go to that person who frustrated you. Go back to them and, and first confess that, that you did complain. Ask their forgiveness for going behind their back. And then be honest with them. Tell them why you're frustrated. It's okay to be honest with one another. Go to them and say, this is why I'm struggling. Maybe there's a solution that the two of you can find to your frustration. Or maybe that person will share with you some information you're unaware of that, hey, maybe there was no choice here. Maybe their decision was forced. Please don't give in to this sin of grumbling, of complaining. It will tear us apart. It's a disease that spreads like cancer among us. Instead, go directly to the person who frustrates you. That's the first sin Paul looks at. The second is similar. We've actually looked at the second sin before this semester, disputing. It's the idea of quarreling or arguing. Now, not all arguments are bad. We can debate about things. What this is looking at are are, are when we allow quarrels or arguments over secondary things like how we raise our kids, what political party we vote for, what the music should be like on the stage. So it's when we let these arguments about these secondary things trump our unity together. Remember, Paul calls us to harmony. Harmony says, despite all these secondary opinions I have at the end of the day, even though I can have those opinions, I'm going to set them aside and I'm going to lock arms with you in the task of sharing the gospel. That's the idea here. Don't let quarrels over secondary things destroy your ability to unify around the gospel. Okay, so Paul's challenging them. They, they had a particular difficulty with these two sins, complaining and disputing. Paul challenges them, you need to grow here. You need to not give in to that. The, the challenge for us is that these are hard. These are hard. We are born as complainers. That comes naturally to us. We're born complaining about everything. We need help. That's why verses 12 and 13 are such good news. My part in this whole thing is to choose to run from complaining and disputing to not give in to it, to avoid that temptation. That's my part, but I don't do it in my own strength because God's got a part to play. I rely on God to empower me to overcome that temptation, to not give in to the temptation to complain. And as I give in to his power day after day and don't complain, he transforms me so that after the years, I become a non-complainer. He changes me. He goes against my nature. So no longer do I give in to complaining. Now I handle conflict well. That's the good news of verses 12 and 13. Well, you may notice we're most of the way through this sermon and we haven't even looked at the bulk of the passage. Uh, The last verses we haven't looked at, we're going to do that really quickly. What Paul does in verses 15 to 18 is he tells us what is the result. To the Philippians, if you guys grow in your sanctification, what will the result be? Paul gives us two results. Let's read that part of the passage. We're going to actually go back and start in verse 14. Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. So if we give into this process of sanctification, if we obey, relying on the power of the Holy Spirit to work in us and transform us, what are the results? There's two of them. The first result that Paul lays out for us is, as we obey and grow in Christ's likeness, we become a witness to the world. That's what he means when he uses these phrases, blameless and innocent above reproach. 
To be above reproach means that you're living such an upright life in view of the community around you that if someone in our town leveled a charge against you, a false accusation, the rest of the town would stand up and laugh. Say, there's no way that that this person is guilty of that evil. I've watched them. They're incredibly righteous. That's what it means to live above reproach. If we live above reproach, then Paul tells us the result is we'll be lights in the world. Or uh, I think you can translate this, shine like stars in the heavens. If we live in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation above reproach, then we will shine like stars in the heavens. We will reflect the righteousness of God to this world. We will become a witness of the goodness of the light of God to this dark world. Paul has that idea in mind in the next phrase. He says, holding fast, or or maybe better, holding out the life-giving word. He's talking about the gospel here. When we obey, when we grow in sanctification, it gives us the opportunity to hold out to this world the life-giving message of the gospel. Now, I saw that in my own life, particularly in that sin we were looking at complaining. Uh, When I was in college, I I didn't do so well. It wasn't so hot when it came to complaining. I complained all the time. Complained about my professors. Complained about my tests. Complained about the lack of parking on campus. I complained. Complained whether I was around believers or unbelievers. And because of that, when I drew close to these unbelievers, man, they just welcomed me in as one of the club. Hey, you're just like us, discontent and fed up. Come join our club. Well, they're welcoming me in as one of them. That means I don't have a witness. I don't have any hope to share with them. To them, I look as fed up as they are, as discontent with life as they are because of my complaining. Because I gave into the sin of complaint, it shut the door on witnessing to a lot of folks in college. But I feel like God taught me and he grew me and he challenged me. I'm certainly not perfect here, but when I graduated from college and I went and I took my first job, a small engineering company that had chronic management problems, problems that led most of my coworkers to complain all the time. It was a pretty bad situation. By the grace of God, I learned not to complain. Not to join in on that complaint. I just, I, I, even if I felt angry, I simply would not join in the complaining. And after a while, guess what happened? It drew my coworkers to me. Instead of me becoming like them, they wanted to find out, what do I have? Man, I'm in the same office. It's awful day after day. How is it that I have joy? How is it that I have happiness and contentment that I don't give into this bitterness and complaint? They wanted to know, so, well, here it is, the gospel. I got to share with them the peace and contentment I get because of my relationship with Jesus Christ. If you obey, it gives you an opportunity to be a witness for Jesus Christ. Obedience is the doorway through which we hand the world the gospel. That's the first reason or first result that comes as we grow in our sanctification. We become a witness to the world. The second thing that Paul gives us, the second result is in our obedience. As we grow to obey more and more, we worship God. That's the meaning of verse 17. It's a a little bit of a difficult verse to decode. Paul says of his own life that he is a drink offering. Well, in the Old Testament, the drink offering was the final thing you poured over a sacrifice of worship to God. Okay, so you you sacrifice like a bull or a goat. You got it all ready. You put it on the altar. Drink offering was just the icing on the cake. That's all Paul is. The bulk of this sacrifice of worship, the meat of it, is the Philippians' service. I think you can put it very literally, Paul saying in verse 17, the sacrifice, it's your sacrificial service to the faith. That is their worship to God, their sacrificial service. What Paul's telling us is, do you want to know what worship is? Do you want to know how you actually worship God? Through obedience. Obedience is the meat of your offering of worship to God. 
We think it's through singing. Yeah, there's, there's some worship in singing, but the primary act of worship we give to God is obedience. Our worship is made up of obedience. If we're not obeying God, we're not worshiping God. Because worship is obedience. Do, do you want to worship God? Do you want to praise him? Well, you do so through choosing to obey him. That's the offering you put on the altar before him. That is what is pleasing, a pleasant aroma to him. Our obedience. So as we grow in sanctification, to obey more, to be more like Christ, we become a sacrifice of worship to our God. So when we walk through this passage this morning, we learned a lot of stuff. Paul told us, number one, why? Why should we obey? Why should we bother? Well, because we will be held accountable by the Lord and sovereign judge of the universe. It is the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, absolutely holy Jesus Christ before whom we will stand and be judged. That's why, but how? How do we actually grow in sanctification? How do we grow in obedience? Our part is simply to obey, to choose each and every day to obey Christ in every way, but not in our own strength, but in the strength that God provides. That's his part. He empowers our obedience today, and as he empowers our obedience, he also transforms us day after day to want to obey to desire what he desires, to become more like Christ. And as we grow in obedience, as our desires are changed, we witness the gospel to the world and we become an offering of worship to God. That's what this passage is about. Incredibly significant passage. I want to challenge you this week. I'm going to give you a couple questions to ponder. I think this passage is so profound. I really want to encourage you guys, please don't let this morning be the only time you spend in it. Um, please set aside maybe 20 minutes, half an hour this week to go reread this passage. As you do, here are the questions I want you to think about and ask God. Number one, do I seek to worship God through my obedience? Do I seek day by day to worship God through my obedience? Am I trying by obeying to give God praise, to give God glory? Is that how I worship God? Through obedience. Number two, ponder on Is there anything in my life that is hindering God's work of sanctification? Is there anything in me that's holding me back? Perhaps my unwillingness to try. I'm just not interested in obedience. That'll certainly hold you back. Perhaps unconfessed sin. I just don't want to confess something to God. Perhaps absence of spiritual disciplines. I'm so busy I'm not spending time in the word or in prayer. I'm not going to have the power of the spirit if that's the case. Or or perhaps it's doubt. Perhaps I've struggled with a sin so long that I don't believe God can change me. I don't believe he can give me victory in that area. That doubt will hold you back. If you spend time pondering these questions and you see any of those things, and I challenge you to do what Jamie was challenging you earlier, surrender that to God. Surrender that to God. Say, God, I I commit myself to to obey you in every area, to confess my sins to you. I I surrender to you my doubt. God, help me to believe that you can change me. God, I surrender my time to you. I'll practice these spiritual disciplines so you can fill me with your power. I want us to begin to ponder these questions actually right now. We're going to take communion with one another. Uh, What communion offers us is an opportunity to reflect on and celebrate the sacrifice that Christ made. The the point of chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, the sacrifice of Christ for our sins. That's what we're going to celebrate this morning. I invite any of you who have trusted in Jesus as your Savior to celebrate communion with us. But as the elements are passed here in a moment, what I'm going to ask you to do is spend a couple minutes pondering these questions and just reflecting on your life. 
Jesus died for us. He sacrificed his life for us. Then he rose from the dead and now he has ascended as Lord of the universe. Let us ponder these questions and God, am I obeying you? Am I worshiping you through my obedience? And what is holding me back from growing to be more like your son? So as Jamie plays, if you'll just bow your heads and spend some time thinking about your life and and asking God to convict you of sins to confess, to challenge you to obey him in every way. tells us in 1 Corinthians 11 For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me In the same way he took the cup also after supper saying This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord God, we praise you. We celebrate the gift of your son who died so that we might have life. We pray that we would live worthy of that, that we would live in recognition of his glory, of his exaltation that we would obey you. Thank you so much, Lord, that you fill us with your spirit and empower our obedience today and transform our desires so that we want to obey tomorrow. Please help us to be a congregation of faithful people who obey you and through our obedience worship you and hold out to the world the hope of the gospel. Thank you so much for your son in whose name we pray. Jamie's going to lead us in a closing hymn of worship to the Lord. worship Christ for what he's done for us. Father, our words can't express how grateful we are for what you've done for us for the cross of Jesus Christ. But we want to give you our lives as an act of worship, as an act of thanksgiving for what you've done for us, for paying the great cost for our sins and for changing us. I pray, God, that we would obey your word this morning, that we would submit to you. And that in submitting to you, we might shine as lights in this world. When people look at us, they would see people who are different, who have been changed by the grace of Christ. May we take our Savior to a lost and dying world. May they see Him in us. That's our prayer, God. And we give ourselves to you toward that end. In Jesus' name, we pray and we sing these things. Amen.